Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Wow, so uh, man, let me, uh, let me share a little bit from my preacher's heart for, for you just for a moment. Uh, jumping into a book like Daniel is like this, I wanted to use the word ignomious task, but then I thought I might have to explain that. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I really don't, like just the word that came to me. It's been an overwhelming task, and, and so I'm just going to be transparent with you guys just for a moment. Some of the preacher dilemma that I kind of go through, and that is this, how do I give you enough a part of an introduction to help you know really how to understand the book? But at the same time, how do I not overwhelm you with information and introduction that I lose you as an audience? <laughs> you know, it's kind of kind of this weird thing that goes on. And so, uh, for those of you who really know that uh, that actually there's a lot here, you've probably studied the Book of Daniel, you know a lot of stuff, and you're like, "Bro, I just can't wait for you to bring this." Uh, today, I am really just going to do kind of a drive-by introduction, and then we're going to jump into just a couple of verses and just kind of touch on it lightly, and then I promise you as we go along, I'm going to unpack it in great depth. There was just too much for me to fit into one message without absolutely losing you on this first day. Is that fair? Can we do that? You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, so uh, for those of you who wanted me to go really deep, you'll be like, Okay, for those of you who wanted me to kind of stay up here, you'd be like, okay. For those of you who like Goldilocks and wanted it just right, that's who I'm preaching to today, amen. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you know, there was a young man living in the country where, he, where the true God was known. His country was invaded by these pagan terrorists. They besieged and conquered his country, and he, along with some of the choicest young people of that country, they're carried away. And they were held hostage, really, in the land of Iraq, there to live for the rest of their lives. They lived there and served in the service of four successive kingdoms over a period of about 70 years. And so if you're kind of already tracking in on, you know that I'm not talking about a modern-day story from the news. You know that I'm talking about a young man named Daniel from the Old Testament, a man whose, whose name is given as a title for the name of the book that we're studying, and somehow the Holy Spirit inspired this young man, Daniel, actually as an older man, uh, to write the book that we find in our hands. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to kind of use Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 as some introductory material, but also preach on it as well. So I'm going to read from the book of Daniel uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and just to show that we acknowledge that the Lord is speaking, I wonder, would you just rise to your feet? as we read from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of what? Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of what? Yeah, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now pay attention. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. May you be seated and may God bless the reading of his word. It goes without saying that Daniel is probably one of the most interesting and essential books in all the Bible. It's been said that Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. In other words, you can't really understand the Old Testament without the book of Daniel and you really won't be able to understand the New Testament without the book of Revelation. However, when you study the book of Revelation, you invariably have to go to the book of Daniel. And when you study the book of Daniel, you invariably have to go to the book of Revelation. You see, when Daniel was a teenage boy, he was carried away from his homeland into a strange land. And as far as we can tell, he never returned again. Now, you may be thinking, what a horrible, just a horrible thing, what, what tragic circumstances. And then if I'm reading that and I hear that, I'm thinking, does God really care for a boy that he allows something like that to happen to? I mean, does God really care for a teenager whom he allowed to be taken hostage in a foreign land never to return again? Does God really care? 
Yet when you read the book, you will discover many times that the Bible describes Daniel as one who is greatly loved by God. How do we hold those two truths? God says he's greatly loved, but yet he was taken and held hostage in a foreign land. What a strange situation, right? A boy who's greatly loved by God, yet he's carried away and becomes a captive for the rest of his life. Listen, it all makes sense, or it begins to make sense, when you really begin to realize what the book of Daniel is all about. If I could give it my own phrase, there's lots of people who've given it a title, but the one that just keeps popping up to me is really it's about the loving sovereignty of God. Add that adjective, the loving sovereignty of God. In other words, we could say it this way, the book of Daniel is really about telling us God's really in control. I mean, he is really in control. So let's just kind of begin this introductory material here. I want to kind of place it geographically for you. So you can see up here on this map, and, and this isn't the best map, but it's one of the maps that we could use. You see over here on the left is Egypt. You'll kind of know that place. And then if you kind of go across from Egypt and you begin to go up the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, that's where Israel is. Okay, and you see there, there's a little dot that says Jerusalem. Okay, and then if you'll see, Babylon kind of came in and taken over this big area that you see that's kind of shaded there. And then if you'll look, there's a star over here on your right, and that's Babylon. Now, what you need to know is it is probably you could fit the state of Texas right there and add about 100 miles because it's about 100 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. I mean, 900 miles. It's 900 miles in distance there. And then you got to pay attention here because this is incredibly important. If you see, you'll kind of see the Tigris River coming down here, and you can see the Euphrates River coming down there, and Babylon, the capital, kind of sits in that area. Well, that's incredibly important because history would tell us that that is the land known as the Mesopotamia region. Meso meaning between, Potamia meaning two rivers. So it's the, the, the land that happened between two rivers. The Kibar Canal, you would hear, you know that. You might not know that you know that from the book of Ezekiel. You would know Ezekiel kind of hangs out there and, and these ravens come and minister to him. So there's a lot of history that's kind of going on there. But then you would notice over here Persia, right? Well, that was back in that day, but what does it become today? See, you got to know these things. And Iraq and Iran are in there. You just don't see them because the modern geography has changed. But I just kind of want to sit that there for you just to know what we're talking about, what part of the world we're actually talking about there. Now let me place this book real quickly in the timeline of the kings. The first king mentioned there in verse 1 is King Jehoiakim. Now king Jehoiakim reigned in the southern kingdom. And I'll explain that to you in a little bit. Israel which was the northern kingdom, had been defeated by the Assyrians. They're in that northern part, and the Assyrians come down, and they take over in 722 B.C. But Judah, the southern kingdom, they survived the Assyrian attack, but they did not survive the Babylonian attack. And in 605 B.C., you've got to know these dates. That's why we give you these journals, to write these things down, because these dates will be incredibly important in understanding what happens later from the prophecies that are given and in the book of Revelation to understand those prophecies. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and he seized it and he took lots of people and lots of things back to Babylon. But then in 539, another king rises and his name is Cyrus and he defeats Nebuchadnezzar and now we start another empire called the Persian Empire. You see, the Babylonians only lasted about 70 years, but the Persians came and took over and they lasted for about 200 years. We're saying, well, then who came after the Persians? Well, that's when Alexander the Great, you may have heard of him, took over. So what we're trying to tell you is, man, our Bible just isn't made up. It's actually world history right here that we can really prove. Now, the author of the book, let's talk about the author. You would think that that would just be a foregone conclusion, that Daniel is the author. It's named after him. But you got to think with me just for a minute. Daniel leaves in 605 BC, but he writes this book around 530 B.C. And that would have been during the, the king uh, Cyrus from Persia. He would have been writing during that reign. Now, the Persians are going to show up in chapter 5. We're going to read all about it. They, they kind of come in and take over. As I've told you, they take over for quite a while. But 
What you need to know is, is not everybody that's out there, even maybe this morning, believes that Daniel actually wrote the book of Daniel. There are many, many people who've attacked the book of Daniel. Modern day critics who assail the book basically are just rehashing a very old attack that showed up in the year 200. In the year 200, there was a man by the name of Porphyry. And he's a great enemy of the Christian faith. And he wrote a series of books entitled Against the Christians. And basically what he said was, is what a lot of people say. He said that there's no way that Daniel could have knew and prophesied the things that have happened. So what Daniel has done or what somebody else has done is they've written something post those events, put Daniel's name on it, because that's the only way anybody could be that specific about any prophecy. Somebody had to have written it after the events happened. And so we think in our our world, if you go to school and you've heard of this thing called biblical criticism, we think that kind of happened and showed up maybe mid-1400s and 1500s. But I'm telling you, it was there in the early 200s. Biblical criticism has has been around for as long as the Bible has. So what I need you to understand is Porphyry was, was saying, you know what? That really didn't happen. Daniel really didn't write that book. Somebody else did. But here's the cool thing. You need to know this. Well, back in 1948 and and years successively after that, we began to find these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And as we've continued to research over there in that area, uh, those caves, what we found is, is we found the book of Daniel written in almost its entirety. We have so many copies of it, and it goes back to even before the time of Porphyry. So what would that tell you, see? That would tell you that then A, basically, can I say it this way, because he's not allowed to defend himself, I don't know that I should say this, but I need to tell you, I'm trying to be nice, but we've proven that Porphyry was just an outright liar is what we've proven. We have older extants from the book of Daniel that actually go back to the time that Daniel actually wrote those books sitting in museums around the world. Dates, copies that are exactly the same. So we've proven that Daniel actually did write Daniel in the time that Daniel did write it. But why really would there be such an attack on Daniel? I've told you, some people just don't like Christians, and so they're going to try to make us look stupid. But the truth always wins out. But there's another couple of reasons. One is because it's presented to us as a book of prophecy. Prophecy is history written beforehand. Prophecy can contain predictions concerning the future. Porphyry and modern-day critics don't believe the Bible can actually be prophetic. They, They say it's impossible to predict the future you know that the Bible teaches that God can predict the future. I mean, if we're talking about anybody but God, maybe I would go with you, but God can write history beforehand, couldn't he? I mean, he kind of existed before history, and history is really nothing more than his story. You've kind of heard that. So just turn back to Isaiah. I'm going to go there, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Here's what God says about that. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my plan will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Basically, if you put that down into redneck English, God's saying, man, I can prophesy. I know what's going to happen before it happens, y'all. That's what he's saying. Yet the critics say that prophecy is impossible. It can't happen that way. Well, if I were you, I would be very cautious to presume what God can or cannot do. Just turn to John chapter 14 for a moment. In verse 29, let's just look what Jesus says. Jesus used this. Jesus would say, and now I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you something that hasn't happened yet. I'm going to tell you history beforehand, and when it comes behalf, you're going to believe what I told you. And that's one of the greatest arguments that we have for the authenticity of the Bible. You'll find in the Old Testament that there are literally 100 predictions about the first coming of Jesus into the world, and we know that every single one of those predictions has came true. The Bible actually, I don't know if you know this, it's the only book in any religion that even attempts the matter of prophecy. You want to know why? Because if you can debunk any prophecy, then it means the whole book is wrong. So imagine what God puts out there when he puts out prophecy. It's another reason you can hold true to the word. Then there's another reason that people attack Daniel, because Daniel includes the supernatural. So if God can't prophesy, God certainly can't do miracles. And you've heard some of these miracles, right? That there's these 
there's these lions and Daniel gets put in this lion's den, but God somehow supernaturally gets him out of that. There's, we sang about it this morning. There's these people who go down this fiery furnace and even the people who threw him in died, but all four of them come out. They don't even smell like smoke. <laughs> Lots of miracles going on in the book of Daniel. The critics say there's no such thing as a miracle. But we have a Bible which has been inspired by a supernatural miracle-working God. And here's the truth of the matter. If you can't believe Genesis 1, verse 1, you're going to struggle with the rest of the book. But if you can simply believe Genesis 1, 1, you've got to believe everything else. So it's really just a matter of what you're going to believe. There are other books in the Bible that refer to the book of Daniel and refer to Daniel as a real person. In other words, he's not just this fake person. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet that most people respect. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, Ezekiel says, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst. You just got to know that Ezekiel wouldn't be writing about false people. If we believe that Noah existed, we've also got to believe that Daniel existed. If we believe that Job was a real person, then we therefore have to believe that Daniel is a real person. Ezekiel 28.3, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret that is a match for you. Daniel was a man that had a lot of wisdom. And so Ezekiel is letting us know that he believed that he was a real person. In the hall of fame, in the hall of faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33, it says, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, and shut the mouths of lions. Who's that referring to? It's referring to Daniel. So even the writer of Hebrews affirms that he believed that Daniel was a real person, did the things that he did. But you see... All that really doesn't matter to me because there's only one person's opinion I really think that matters. The only person I know truthfully in my own life, I haven't experienced Daniel, I haven't experienced Ezekiel, but I have experienced the Lord Jesus. And his opinion is really the only one that really matters to me. So what did Jesus say about this? Turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, what was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus is affirming that Daniel is a real person, and he calls Daniel a prophet. So here are the critics on the one hand saying, we don't know about this Daniel. Here's the king of the universe saying Daniel's real. Guess who I'm going with? I'm going with Jesus. So that kind of settles the question of authorship, and it was Daniel a prophet, and it, because Jesus says so. And you may say, well, that's just too simplistic. That's just too simple. That's why I gave you some of the other evidence that you can talk with me about later. Let me just say in passing that the conservative scholars have answered every single one of the objections to the authenticity and accuracy of the book of Daniel. That was the information that I, I thought maybe I should include, but I'm going to leave it out for now and maybe get to it a little bit later. Every objection that's ever been labeled against the book of Daniel has been answered amazingly so. But I want to deal with what this book really is all about and the message that Daniel intended for you and me. So let's now talk about the purpose of the book very quickly. I have to ask ourselves, really, why did Daniel write this book? What inspired him to write this book? Well, I think the purpose is really clear. It was really to encourage Jews in exile that God is the sovereign Lord over the nations and that his kingdom will come as a final and everlasting kingdom. Was God caught by surprise when the Babylonians came into power? Nope. God put them in power. Was God caught by surprise when the Persians came into power? No, God put them in power. Was God surprised when the Greeks came into power? No, he put them in power. Was God surprised when Joe Biden became the president? No, he put Joe Biden in the presidency. God's never surprised by what's happening. God is in total control. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil and ruthless man. Cyrus was not much better. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. No one gets into any place of authority and deals with anything without God saying so. Because God is in control. So quickly, if you wanted to kind of outline the book, some of you are like, tell me what, what the book's about. Like, I want to read the, the like, the, the introduction up here, I want to see what these chapter headings are. Tell me what's going on in the book. Well, this is for you. Basically, you can divide the book of Daniel into two even parts, the first six chapters and the last six chapters because it has 12. The first six chapters, really you could talk about it, covers the man 
or the prophet himself. The last six chapters covers the message or the prophecies. The first six chapters contain those wonderful stories. In chapter one, it's about these guys and they're not drinking the wine of the king. They're not eating the food of the king. They're being more noble and wiser than the king's men. And then you've got the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, this great gold statue and a fiery furnace in chapter three. In chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar being humbled so that he lives like an animal because of his pride and his hubris. Chapter five, the kingdom falls at the time of Belshazzar to the Persians. Chapter six contains the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And then chapter seven through 12, I don't have a clue what that's about. And I'm going to reserve the right to change my opinion every week as we go through those chapters. And anybody who tells you they've got chapters 7 through 12 figured out, man, you might as well bow down and worship because that's King Jesus. I'm, I'm just telling you. I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not trying to be less humble. I'm just telling you, this stuff is deep, and I don't know anybody who's got it all figured out. I'm not even going to tell you I've got it figured out. I'm going to give you my humble opinion. So pray for me, because this is a tough task. <laughs> Chapters 1 through 6, you have the man and the prophet. 7 through 12, the message and the prophecies. The first two chapters are their, their primary historical. The last six chapters are primarily prophetic and even apocalyptic. The first six chapters give us visions and history concerning the nations. And the last six chapters give us visions concerning Israel and the future of the world. It's true that there's some who would say the book ought to be actually broken down into three, threefold division because it may be news to you or it may not, but there's actually from beginning in chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 7, verse 28, the original language of the text changes. It goes from Hebrew to Aramaic back into Hebrew. And so some people would say because of that, that's a significant dividing line that we should have three dividing parts. I don't necessarily think that that's Important how we divide it, just thought that you know that you can divide it. So we're going to study this book. We're going to try to let, let you understand. I'm going to try to give you some principles for interpreting prophecy, period. So really, what does this all mean? If I were just to stand here and tell you a bunch of stuff and it didn't really touch your life, I would be amiss. So I want to really zone in a little bit more about where we're heading this morning. So we're going to start here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. I'm just going to read that verse to you. However, there is a God in heaven. I want you to know that. <laughs> there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what would take place in the latter days. This is your dream and the vision of your mind while on your bed. But there is a God in heaven. That's really all I want you to think about right now. Just want you to know that there's a God in heaven and he is real. He exists. And I want to convince you of that this morning. Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. This is decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and he grants it to whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of people. There's this God and he is in control. He grants things to whomever he wishes. Daniel 4, 25, that you be driven away from mankind, that your dwelling place will be the ant like the animals of the field. You'll be even grass to eat like the cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Same concept that you would know that there is a God who is in Absolute control. Lastly, Daniel 4.32. It says there at the very end of that, that you would recognize the most highest ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whoever he wishes. I want you to know that there's a God in heaven and that God in heaven rules over the kingdoms and hearts of men. I want you to see and know that God is in control, that the loving sovereignty of God is something that you and I can completely trust in. If I were to say it in modern day vernacular, God is really running this show. What the word of God teaches is that there's a God in heaven and he's in charge of the affairs of men. Now listen, if you can really just, that's so simple, it sounds so great, but if you can truly learn that and let that sink into your heart, it will be one of the greatest blessings in all of your life to know that God is really in charge. 
It will keep you calm when this world seems to be going crazy. When all this election stuff and all this world's going crazy and there's now talk of new COVID stuff going on, if you know that God is in control, you'll keep your mind. You won't have to freak out because you know who's in control. When everything else in your life is crumbling apart and you're saying, does anybody know what's going on? God is in control. He's allowed whatever's happened to to happen for whatever reason, but he is in control. I want to show you how that works by going back to Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. These give some historical circumstances which resulted in Daniel being carried to Babylon. But there's three kings here. I don't know if you paid attention. We three kings of Orient are. No, it's not those three kings. There's three other kings, and I want to just maybe land some practical stuff for you this morning based on those. So I gave you a brief introduction, now moving into a brief explanation of the text. The first thing is this. I want you to see this, man. King Jehoiakim. King Jehoiakim teaches me that you can follow the path of sinners who try control. It's possible. In your life, you can actually follow the path of sinners who try control. The first king there in verse 1, it says, in a year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He's called the king of Judah. Now, you have to understand this, that at that time, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, and they had different kinds of kings. There was the northern kingdom, and that was called Israel. So when you're talking about the divided kingdom and Israel is being talked about, isn't the whole place, it's the northern part. Now, the thing that's crazy about the northern kingdom is they didn't have a single king who was good. They didn't have a single king who was good. And so they were carried off into Assyrian captivity in 722 because of that. And they were cut off from the scene pretty quick. But down in the southern part where Jerusalem was, that's what the Bible refers to as Judah. Just kind of got to know that's what's referred to as Judah when it's describing that southern part of the kingdom of Israel. They had 11 kings and eight of those kings were good kings and four of those kings were bad kings. Jehoiakim was one of the bad kings. And this is another reason why the Babylonians come in, because you can follow the path of sinners who try control, but there's somebody else that's in control when he doesn't really deal well with sin. You see, it was during the days of Jehoiakim that the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and invaded the city of Jerusalem And it was during that time that Daniel and his friends were carried away into captivity. Why? Because this man was a wicked, godless king. It was because of his reign and departure of the people of God from the word of God and their absolute just just love and satiation with idols that they were carried away into captivity. You see, God had been warning the people what was going to happen. He kept telling them, if you depart from me and my word, There's not going to be a good thing that's going to happen. You will go into captivity. So they were departing from God's word. They were disobeying God's word. And let me just be be practical with you. The moment you and I cease to stay in the word of God is the moment that vacuum will be filled with an idol. I promise you. It is going to happen. The moment we turn from the word of God, the moment you stop... Filling your heart with the word of God, something's going to fill that void and it will be an idol of some form. We've talked about that in weeks previously. And so they were disobeying and they were following the path of a sinner. You're saying, well, how do you know that? Because Jehoiakim, if you read his history, he hated the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah was inspired to write some scripture and his servant carried it to the king Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim gets a part of the scroll of the scripture and he reaches in his pocket, he takes out a pocket knife, he cuts up all the pages and he throws it in the fire to be burned. That's what he thought about the word of God. Well, imagine if he doesn't have the word of God, then what is he doing? He's living in idolatry. And he led the people into greater idolatry. They just couldn't seem to get away from dabbling in idols. So they were carried away into captivity. So you'll notice in verse 2 that it says that he carried it to the land of Shinar, to the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Shinar is Babylon. That's where the Tower of Babel is. That's where the famous Babylonian hanging gardens were, if you know anything about world features. It was the center of idolatry in the world at that time. It's like almost like God said, okay. If you want to turn from me and my word and you want to go after idols, then I'm going to let you go right back to where it all began. 
I'm going to let you go into idolatry to its deepest level, and I'm going to show you what it will do for you. Now, let me make the modern application, and I am not calling out any particular sins because I think they're greater or less than. I'm just trying to apply the principle and then let the Holy Spirit apply it to your hearts, not even talking about these two particular things. Just, just giving you practical application. But see, sometimes people just dabble in some stuff, and God will turn you over to it. People just start dabbling with alcohol. They just start dabbling. They take a sip of this or a sip of that, and then the next thing you know, they won't leave it alone. And so then God says, okay, and he gives you over to it. And then you begin to see what God said wasn't wise. The next thing you know, you're addicted. When people dabble with just pornography, students, pay attention to me in this room because I know. I know it's a real thing for you on these cell phones. You just begin to look at one thing, and it's just one thing. It's just an inappropriate thing. And the next thing you know, you're looking at something else that's inappropriate. And then it's really hard to pull away from it because the chemicals that are released in your brain say that, man, you need more of that to satisfy that. And the next thing you know, you're addicted to pornography. It's just the way it works. But what has God said, see? What has God said about these things? It's not wise for leaders to be given to alcohol. It's not wise. It's not good for anyone to, to look upon a male or a female in their nakedness. That's not what the scripture says, right? The prodigal son, listen to me, the prodigal son who left his father, the prodigal son had the far country in his heart long before the far, he was in the far country. That idea and that desire to leave his parents and to leave out of their, their authority and to not submit to them, that was already in his heart way before the time came for him to leave. And it was just the father said, hey, hey, son, if that's the way you want to do it, then I'm going to let you have at it. And he did not try to stop his son. He let his son go into the far country and experience its depths. Because listen, when you get away from God, there's a hog pen on the other end, I promise you. Every single time. And you can get into it, friends. I'm telling you, this king, he teaches me, and he's teaching you today that if you follow the path of sinners who try to take control, you're going to end up somewhere that you didn't want to be. Psalm 1, 1 through 6 says it this way. What's the progression here? Blessed is a person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Did you notice that? At first, man, you're just kind of walking around, hanging around. You dabble in a little bit, and the next thing you know, it's got your attention. You're kind of standing there listening. And before you realize what's happening, you're sitting right there doing it with them. That's exactly what happens, friends. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Do you see now the scripture is saying, but listen, if you don't want to follow the path of sinners, you stay in the word of God and you will be planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit, right? But the wicked are not so, verse four. They're like shaft. Therefore, the wicked will not stand, nor sinners in the assembly. For the Lord knows the day, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's this path, there's this way. And God is telling you, man, you can... You can easily fall into this path of sinners who try control. But God wants you and I to stand in the right path and to live on the right path. Jeremiah 6, 16 says it this way. This is one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. This is what the Lord says. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find a resting place for your soul. See, you can follow the path of sinners, those who try control, but in the end, sin always ends up in control. So just stay in the word, friends. So where is God in all this? And God's allowed them into captivity. It's God who's arranged the, the circumstances. He's in control. The King Jehoiakim is in control. Never been in control. God's in control. Secondly, there's another king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. What I learned from good old King Neb. And that is you can fall prey to the sinister who take control. Sinners, they try control, but the sinister, they take control. And if you are not careful, you will fall prey to them every single time. 
In many ways, Nebuchadnezzar was one of the great rulers of the history of the world. Nebuchadnezzar was a magnificent military strategist. He was a brilliant statesman. He was a tremendous builder. Some of his building projects are simply unbelievable. When he, over in that that chapter where he builds a statue to himself, it was a marvel of a construction project. Yet he was a man who was characterized by tremendous brutality. And to give you some understanding of just how brutal he was, there was a man in Iraq many years ago. I don't know if you remember. His name was Saddam Hussein. You remember that guy? You remember he was so evil we had to take him out? Remember that? His hero, his hero was Nebuchadnezzar. And he modeled everything he did after Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he was in the process of rebuilding the city of Babylon in honor of his God, Nebuchadnezzar, when we took him out. He had inscribed the name of Nebuchadnezzar and his own name on the bricks he was using to rebuild the city of Babylon. He not only emulated his hero in cruelty, he outdid his hero in cruelty. And the stories continue to come out about the atrocities of Saddam Hussein. We read about his torture rooms and his rape rooms. We read that he slaughtered his own people in hundreds of thousands, even millions, because he was sinister. But where did he learn that? He learned that from Nebuchadnezzar. Yet the Bible says that this man, Nebuchadnezzar, was allowed by God to conquer the very people of God. You think it can't happen? You think it can't happen to America? I'm telling you, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I just work for a nonprofit. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. America's on real thin ice, friends. As a nation, we have departed from the word of God. As a nation, we're caught up with all kinds of idols of every kind and every description. And there comes a time when God's patience is absolutely exhausted. And God will allow us to fall prey to those who are sinister. More personally, maybe you're saying, well, that would just never happen to me. Proverbs 14, 12 has some words of wisdom for you. It's wisdom literature. Listen, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Yeah. See, beloved, there is a fight for control over your heart and over your life. If you're not surrendered to King Jesus, you will fall prey to those who want to take control. You're saying, Pastor, I just don't know if I really believe that. Well, let me get really, let me step on some toes. Let me stir up some junk. That's what I'm famous for. Let me just help you for a moment. This gender confusion mess that we're dealing in, you might think people are trying to help kids. You know what I'm telling you they're doing? They're trying to take control is what they're doing. The government and psychologists and all these wacky people out there are trying to take control of your children. Do you see it? Do you not see it for what it is? If you are not following the word of God and in his way, you will fall prey to those who are absolutely going to take control. You're saying, well, I don't know about all that. Well, I could go on, but I won't. Your government's going to try to take control here in a few months with another COVID thing. Just so you know, that's coming. They're going to do sinister things and, and do make people lose jobs. It's, it's coming, just know. Because you can fall prey to those who take control. That's what, that's what this is teaching us. So who was in control, though? Who's in control? Who's in control? God's in control. You just got to know that. See, you might not have seen the third king. You saw, you saw King Jehoiakim, and you saw King Nebuchadnezzar, but, but did you see in verse 2, it says, tells you who the, who the other king is. It's King Jesus. Did you see there? It says the Lord. Did you see that? But see, what you may not know is what I know, and it's just because I've studied it, not because you couldn't know. But that's not the normal word for the Lord there. That's the word Adonai. And the word Adonai means the ruler or the sovereign one. 
It says, and the Lord, the sovereign God in heaven, the God who rules over the kingdom of men, that word Adonai, that is the one who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he had conquered Judah. But see, here's what I'm trying to tell you. This point is, is you can put your faith personally in the sovereign who is in total control. You just got to see that. You can put your faith personally in the sovereign who is in total control. The Bible says that God delivered. God gave Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. That means God was in control of this whole thing. He got the vessels of the temple of the Lord. The Bible says he took those vessels and went down to his own land and his own temple, the temple of his primary God, Marduk. That was his God, which is intended in verse 2. He took those treasures from the house of the Lord, put them in a temple of Marduk, because in those days, a symbol of a king's supremacy and his his God's supremacy over all the other gods that they had conquered was that they would take their treasures out of their temple and put them in their temple. And it looked as if paganism had won. It's as if God had been defeated in the matter. Yet Daniel says, no, I really want you to know what's going on here. I want you to know that it was not Marduk that did this, that it was the Lord God, Adonai, the ruler of the universe, who gave King Nebuchadnezzar that ability to come in and take the people of God somewhere else. It's saying that God is in total control. God is behind the affairs and kingdoms of men. Again, I'm going to refer to this because I need to help you think differently through this upcoming election. But soon, guys, I'm telling you, we're going to elect a president that's going to rule over this land for the upcoming next four years. And if you pay attention to what's going on with with those people, and I'm not going to name any names, but there's a lot of things going on with a lot of people right now. The news is full of it. If you get really nervous about what's going to happen to your country because you're just getting, you're freaking out, let me tell you something. God is in control. You don't have to get stupid. You don't have to lose your mind and just give up hope and joy. You can, you can, listen, a lot of people right now are saying, I don't want to have kids because I don't know what the presidency is going to hold. What? God is in control, friends. And my joy is not dependent on the man in that White House. Are y'all all right with that? You say, he being political. I ain't even got started yet. And I ain't going to be political. Y'all know me. I don't do that. Let me read the quotation of Benjamin Franklin. He's one of my favorites in American colonial history. Here's what he said. At the American Constitutional Convention in 1787, Ben Franklin rose and addressed these words to President George Washington. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. Who's in charge? God's in charge. Colossians 1 says it this way, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Who's in charge, folks? Man, King Jesus. Job 42 says, I know that you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. I want you to know that you can personally place your faith in the sovereign God who is in control, total control over your life. Jeremy, if you and the band would begin to make your way up here, that would be awesome. You know, I don't know. It used to be this thing, but I kind of think it's this way. I don't know. But men tend to have a thing for a TV remote. You ever notice that? I mean, in my house, when my wife gets a hold of it, I know we're going to have problems. She feels the same way about me. I want to watch westerns and war movies, and she wants to watch Beast House Renovation or something. I don't know what we're doing here. I'm trying to reminisce and relax. She's trying to create a project. That's why she don't get the remote. <laughs> well, she does. But I love her. But you talk about a feeling of power. I mean, you're sitting on the couch or in your favorite lounger. You sit back with that remote. You just click. You just can click the power of a button, baby. You can bring some, some Aggie football into your house. You can bring some Baylor football into your house. And then when you get real serious, you'll bring some Longhorn football into your house. Right? But you sit there with that remote, and you can just click a button, and you're watching your favorite team. Or you can click a button, and you can watch the race this afternoon. 
I mean, you could just watch them cars turn left all day long. It's awesome. But, but with, the remote, with the power of a remote click, you can find out what's going on in the world right now. It's crazy the power we have. I mean, just click, click, click. You're in absolute control. Can I tell you something, friends? Can I tell you something today? Can I tell you something? God has got the remote to the universe in his hands. And when he clicks, it just happens, friends. God is in total control. Can I just tell you that one more time? God is in total control. You remember we used to sing this song as kids. You remember this song? Michael rode the boat ashore. Uh, right? Right. And then we kept singing this other thing. He said, he got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He got the whole world in his hands. He got the whole world in his hands. Second verse, got you and me, brother. In it. Right. Y'all remember? What were we trying to teach kids? He's got the whole world in his hands. I know that's Greek. That's really hard to understand. He's got the whole world in his hands. Now listen, if I'm arguing to the, from the greater to the lesser, that's logic. Pay attention. If God's got the whole world in his hands, how much more does he have you in his hands? Your life, every single detail of your life. The Bible tells me that while you and I were in the womb, he had already written down the days of our lives before yet we're even going to be. God's been in your tomorrow before you remember what yesterday was. He's outside of time. He's in total control. So I'm just asking you today, would you personally put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sins? Would you make him the Lord of your life? This morning, some of you watched what happened last week, and you're like, man, I would love to follow Jesus. Well, maybe today is your day. Maybe you've been thinking about that, and today is your day. So just in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, man, it's a really good day to do that. You can certainly do that. And then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray this prayer. You're going to come down the front, and if anybody comes, that's great. If nobody does, that's cool too. But if you come, and we're going to lead you to follow the Lord Jesus, to confess your sins and to receive his forgiveness I've still got this baptistry full, and there's some clothes over here to change, and we'll wait, and we'll baptize you right here as your confession of faith. Here's what I've got a feeling in the room. Here's really where I think most of us are this morning. Most of us today are simply just having a hard time trusting what's going on in our lives to a real sovereign God. And I wonder this morning, maybe you just want to come to this altar and say, Lord, I really do trust you. And you'd want somebody to pray for you. Lord, give me the faith to just trust you. Help my unbelief. Lord, I trust you. So I'm wondering right now, would you just rise to your feet? And I'm just going to ask you this morning, and, and, and this is just the way it is. But man, if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would like to place your faith in him, I'm going to call you to do something bold. I'm going to call you to do something we've asked people to do last week, and it seemed to work. But if you need the Lord Jesus today, you need Jesus to save you, I'm just going to ask you to slip out of your seat right now and just meet me right down here in the front so I know who I'm talking to. If you need the Lord Jesus, I need you just to come. Somebody will come with you. Hey, look to somebody. If you're right and left, say, would you go with me? If you need the Lord Jesus, I'm just going to ask you right now to come forward. Praying for you, man. Anybody else want to join this young man this morning? You got courage, my friend. Mom, I'm proud of you for leading him in the way. Anybody else this morning? Well, here's what I'm going to do, buddy. I'm just going to talk to you like there's other people here. I'm not going to single you out. I'll never embarrass you. This is embarrassing, I know, but it's not my heart. But if you want to follow the Lord Jesus, you've heard the gospel, you've been sitting here, I've watched, you know what, I'm, you know what this is about. I've spoken, and you, you've heard. But if it's your desire today, man, to say, Jesus, I believe that you alone have died on a cross to pay for my sin. That you believe today that, man, you know that you've sinned against him, and you want to be made right with him. You want to trust the fact that he died and was buried and raised for you to make you right, and for him to come inside of your life and for you to surrender your life over to him today. 
And what I need you to do is just pray these words with me. Now, I've asked people to pray this out loud. And the reason I do is because our heart always comes out of our mouth. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him there, we would be saved. So you don't have to say it for everybody to hear. You've got to say it loud enough for you to hear. This prayer will not save you. Never been a prayer on planet Earth that saves anybody because Jesus saves you. This is a prayer to Jesus who saves you. Does that make sense? Is this still something you want to do? Are you sure? We can do it next week. You sure? Okay, I'm just checking, man. I'm just checking your motivation. I love you, buddy, and I'm glad you're here. So if this is a desire of your heart, you just pray these words. That's all we do. We're just going to talk to God. That's all we're doing. You tell him what's on your heart. I'll give you some words to say, but then you pray them. You ready to pray with me, buddy? Grab my hand, man. You just repeat these words after me, just between me and you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I realize that I am a sinner, and I've broken your heart. I come in repentance today, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me. I believe, Jesus, that you died for me, that you were buried and raised to give me life. Please, Jesus, save me. Come into my life. I give you control. Now help me live for you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, welcome to the family of God, buddy. (laughs) Brother, listen, I want to just challenge you. If you want to be baptized right now, and I don't know, Mom, you got time, but if you want to be baptized right now, we're going to sing this song and some people are going to pray. You go around there and, uh, baby, can you help him? There's some clothes sitting up there. There's some towels and clothes. You can just go change, and we'll go over there and get in that tub in a minute. Does that sound good? You want to do it? Let's do it, buddy. All right. Praise God. Mom, would you go with him? I don't know if y'all know what's going on. I just don't know. I don't know if you know, but, man, if I was a church like you, I'd be praying right now is what I'd be doing. I'm not going to drag this out because I've already given the invitation and people will respond as they will. I'm not going to manipulate anybody's emotions. All I want you to know right now is the altar is open for you to come pray. We're going to sing, and you just come grab somebody by the hand. Maybe it's you want to pray about this, you want to pray about anything, you got stuff going on in your life, whatever it is. This altar will be open, and you come pray. I'm going to go change. I'm going to come back. We're going to baptize him, and then in just a moment, we're going to do the Lord's Supper. Does that sound good? So let's pray.